Right. Speaking of the powerful word that transforms our life, I'm going to ask you to turn in your copy of God's word to the book of Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews that is in the New Testament of the Bible. And if you're using one of our pew Bibles, it's going to be on page 1062, the letter to the Hebrews. It's one of the 27 letters of the New Testament, one of the books of the Bible, the 66 books that make up the Bible. And you can turn to 1062, and we're going to be reading 1062, 1063 parts of it, of each page today together. But also, should you feel you need to, you can follow along on the screen behind us. And uh, if you need a Bible as you follow along, uh, and you don't have one, this is our gift to you. It's not just a pew decoration or church decoration. Or just for use on Sundays alone. It is for you. We want to get the Bible in people's hearts and hands. And so we don't want to charge anybody for the Word of God. We want to give it to them freely. So you can have that. And it's a very readable and accurate version. Okay. With that being said, let's talk about the powerful words. Would you stand with me in the honor of the reading of this powerful word? This word that God has graciously preserved for us. He has graciously spoken to us and is still as living and active today as it was when it was originally passed on to those first believers. The Word of the Lord says this in chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. Therefore, since the promise to enter His rest remains, let us beware that none of you be found to have fallen short. For we also have received the good news just as they did. But the message they heard did not benefit them since they were not united with those who heard it in faith. For we who have been believed, for we who have believed enter the rest in keeping with what he has said. So I swore in my anger they will not enter my rest even though His works have been finished since the foundation of the world. For somewhere He has spoken about that seventh day in this way. And on the seventh day, God rested from all His works. Again, in that passage, He says, they will never enter My rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news did not enter because of disobedience, He again specifies a certain day. Today. He specified this speaking through David after such a long time. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. Therefore, a Sabbath rest remains for God's people. For the person who has entered his rest has rested from his own works, just as God did from his. Let us then make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall into the same pattern of disobedience. For the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of the soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from Him. 
But all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. Let us pray. Lord, we have read from Your Word, the Word that You preserved, the Word that You spoke, the Word that You gave, the Word that is still accessible to us. We're so grateful to have it. But Lord, help us to truly hear it, to truly receive it, to truly trust and obey through faith, a true faith. And Lord, today we may be discerning and hear from You as we learn Your Word together. In Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, last week I shared a rather difficult passage of text. A passage that, if I'm just being honest, and and I would always hope I would be honest up here, is that it makes me uncomfortable. It it is rather difficult to, to dialogue about it because it begins to put this different level of person which is really not different to begin with, but but it makes it uncomfortable for us as the church. And that is those who have received Jesus in true faith and those who have not. You see, that's the the real two categories that the Bible places all life. Those with Christ and those without Christ. And it makes it cut to the quick. But what it brings that's uncomfortable is that there are those who seem like they should be on the team with Jesus, who were not with Jesus. And discerning what that looks like. That there are, it is possible for those who have been a part of the perfect conditions, everything around it looks like that would be absolutely right. And yet they walk away because they did not have true faith in the Lord. They were not with Jesus. They were near Jesus. But they were not with Him. And that is incredibly, incredibly difficult to swallow at times. Because some of us, we, we may have been there in our life and we say, I, I know what it looks like to, to know Jesus and yet to walk in utter rebellion and Him to welcome me back. But I also know those that look like they were perfectly with Jesus and they walked away and never returned. And I sometimes wonder how that could be. It could be that they never had true faith. They may have said some words, splashed in a baby bathtub in the the back. They may have given and put things in the shiny plate when it passed around. They may have served and done charitable, wonderful deeds. They may have attended faithfully. They may have even taken notes. But they did not have faith. Their life was still a matter of works, not of faith. And here, the writer of Hebrews, he continues right where we've left off. Once again, this is a letter. So whenever the original recipients had it, they weren't reading, well, the author here, he's telling us this in chapter 3. Now we're going to chapter 4. That was not how the Bible, it was a seamless letter. So this conversation is not, oh, he just had to add another chapter. No, it's, it's, it's right in the same text, right in the same letter as a part of the incredible whole that's here. And he is writing to his readers so that they may understand this is what the Lord says. This is what the Lord means. This is how this applies to what you're going through right now. And 
Now the question remains, what are you going to do about it? And that's a question for all of us. We talk about those each week. We need to hear what the Lord says. We need to see what the Lord means. We need to find how it applies to our life. And, and then we need to unite it with true faith and follow the Lord. The writer of Hebrews has been spending time with this lofty subject of Jesus. A high view of Jesus. Why is he doing that? Because in the current circumstance, the, the readers that he's writing to, it seems that they have are going through a period of struggle, of suffering for their faith in this Jesus. They have left the tradition and the older ways that God had provided for their time, but now that Jesus had arrived and, and had come and lived and died and was resurrected and, and went back to the heaven to heaven, um, those old ways were insufficient. They were provisionary in the moment when they were applied. But now that Jesus had come on the scene, those were insufficient. Those were no longer provisionary. Jesus was the only way. He was the full promise, not a provisional one. But now that they've left this sense of tradition, and now that they're facing the sense of suffering, they have this question, should I continue on in my suffering or should I lessen what I believe about Jesus? Or how I demonstrate what I believe about Jesus? And go back to an old way where I'd be welcomed as long as I go back to embracing these old traditions, this old way of life. What should I do? And the writer starts saying, well, here's the thing. Where do you measure Jesus? Where, where is He in the spectrum of your life? Is Jesus someone lowly and, and just a quiet dude in a bathrobe that was a wise teacher that laid down his life? Or is he not the one who is superior to angels? The one who is superior even to Moses? The one who is given the very title of son? He is equitable. He is equated to God. Not as a mistake, but because he is. That when we see Jesus, we're seeing God. And when we look to God, we should find Jesus because they're one and the same. And if that is the case, how could we, how dare we try to lessen who Jesus is to fix, fit into our own little comfortable area? How can we take such a great promise, such a great hope, such a great good, and then say, now nah, I'm going to put that on the back burner. I'm just going to keep that in my little tiny Jesus box and not make a big deal about it. If you know Him in true faith, that seems utterly impossible and it seems completely ridiculous. And then whenever you get to this portion of text where we're at, we see the writer taking the, the readers, the listeners, back to a little bit of their own history, the, the parts they remembered, and, and it takes them to a dark part. We talked about this last week when it talks about the, the rebellion that happened in the wilderness when the people that God delivered out of Egypt, these want slaves who had no title to themselves, had no right to their own life, they, they were being killed off in Egypt, they were being enslaved, and they're delivered by the mighty Lord who walks with them and demonstrates His grace in very visible, very evident ways. This wasn't just like, hey, we're out in the desert and we've got a lot of heat going on and I'm kind of picturing mirages. No, there was literal food on the ground every morning. There was water literally coming from rocks. 
when they were dying of thirst. There was a pillar of cloud that would lead them when they were marching in the day toward the lands they needed to go. There was a pillar of fire that night when they camped to show that the glory of the Lord was still in the heavens watching over them as their security. There was deliverance from all these armies. And there was the promise that the, 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 the land that I promised to your ancestor Abraham, I'm going to take you there. I'm going to drive out the people that are there because they have lived in utter terrible rebellion such as the same place that you were just at. I'm going to drive them out and I'm going to give you this land. But when it came down to it, after walking with the Lord in the wilderness for two years, seeing His miracles day after day, His presence day after day, they rebelled. The conditions were absolutely perfect for them to be obedient. And yet in the middle of that, when the conditions were even perfect, they did not enter into the land of rest. The Bible speaks a lot about rest. It gives us this, this picture of completeness. It gives us this picture of what is done, the work that needs to be accomplished, the work that is accomplished, and what happens when it is finished. And the Word gives us this because we need it. There are certain areas of our life that, that we need exposure to. We, we need to be pierced with. We need to be discerned and, and, and led in a different way. This is where the Word becomes our hope. It, it leads us to the rest that we need. How does the Word do this? How is the Word so effective? It's because it exposes everything that we need about life. It, it pierces to the places we try to hide and it corrects us to a new way of living. And today, we're going to look at what's going on in, in this fourth chapter, beginning of the fourth chapter of Hebrews to see what in the world is going on whenever he's talking about rest and rebellion and not entering and hardening of hearts and 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 Sabbaths and all these different words. There's a lot of things going on. And you may think I'm just clueless. I got no idea. But here's what we see. The writer of Hebrews, he's ultimately getting to them say your hope is in the fact that God has spoken to you to let you know that your faith is not futile. It's not flippant. And it's not faulty. It is not. If God has spoken His Word, what word in your life would have greater value? Who could say something that you would say, well, God said this, but you know, my big brother, God said this, but this politician says... God said this, but my neighbor says. God said this, but my best friend says this. Which one are you going to weigh in? When God says His word is not futile, it is not faulty, it is not flippant, it comes from Him and it's powerful. And this is how it's powerful. First of all, it's going to expose. It's living and active to, to be real and have just deep effect in our life. How does it expose us? Well, first of all, on the topic of rest, it gives us this picture. If you, if you need to know what the Bible is, is giving you direction on, first of all, it sometimes gives you these word pictures, these, these displays. And he says, I want to tell you about the rest that is there. I want to give you a declaration that, that this whole living is not just eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. What a hopeless way to live. What a futile way of living. 
What a purposeless, just let me live and die already. But that is not what the Word exposes. It says there will be a day of completion where God will provide safe harbor and kindness and compassion and provision for those that are His. This life is not meant to be fruitless. This life will not end for the believer in a place that is fruitless. It tells us there is a place of rest. And if we hear about this place of rest, there's something we need to do. If it's declared to us, first of all, well, if God is speaking, I better listen. If God is saying something to us from His Word, then, then I don't need to just clog my ears and say, oh, yeah, and I've heard that before, or oh, He's going to talk about heaven or something, so I'm just going to tune out. No, every time the Bible is opened, whether it's on a Sunday morning and a pastor is declaring it, or whether you're in a, a group or, or, or in amongst a group of men or a group of women, or whenever you're in your personal time with the Lord, wherever, we should first of all say, God, you're saying a lot about rest here. I better be listening to the message. I would be hesitant to say that God has used the word rest multiple, multiple times over these last few paragraphs and it be pointless. I need to listen. There's something powerful about rest. So not only do I need to listen, I need to learn. It's one thing to hear something and the other thing to learn from it, isn't it? How many of us are guilty of that? How many of us are angered by that when someone does it to us? didn't listen you certainly didn't learn you may have heard the words but it didn't go in and take root with the message of rest there's this message we're going to talk about of of hope of not living for the self only and if we're going to listen to the message of god if we're going to learn from the message a part of our next thing is that next step of leaning in saying god let me listen to what you're saying. You know, there's something about posture. I don't know what it is about posture, but you can kind of tell what's going on by someone. It's just their posture, right? People in business, they, they kind of learn from this. They know, or in education. If your posture is just like... You may be leaning some way, but you're not leaning in. But when someone's talking to you and they do this, what does that say? Either they're telling you and you're saying, I better listen. Or you're telling them, I'm listening and I want to learn. I, I, I'm, I'm putting the posture of my life there. Now, I, I know that just doing that whenever you're reading the Word is, is, is sometimes not what, I, what we need to say is that, oh, you just got to have the right posture when you're reading and that'll make all the difference. But it is something about your, your figurative, your, your, your mindset and your hope. Are you saying, God, I am willing to listen and I'm, I'm wanting to learn and I'm leaning in and, and, and I want it to be dependent on whatever you say to be the next step that I take. Not my own desires. You've made this declaration for a purpose. Here, he not only gives a declaration of rest, but he also gives us a depiction. I love word pictures. I think they're awesome. Take me to some place and, 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 and I want to be there. I, I'm of that reading rainbow age, by the way. I, I, I grew up on PBS. Butterfly in the sky. I can fly twice as high. 
Take a look. It's in our book. All right, see, you laughed at me, but I knew, yeah, you're like, LeVar Burton, yeah. But here's the depiction. The depiction is three accounts of rest in this perfect state that God makes this possible. First of all, he talks about the creation, that when God was setting the foundation of the world in verses 4 and 5, he says that he made this perfect place and he rested from it because all of it was completely, utterly good. And yet, man fell. Then, he talks about the biblical account, the rest that would come from entering the land of Canaan, the land of promise. Verses 6-8, through eight, that Joshua was leading the people there. That was his role, to take up the mantle once that early generation died. He was going to take the next generation into this land of rest. And yet, it says that was not enough. If, if, if that had been good enough, there wouldn't be a need for a promise for anything more. But God did deliver the people into the promised land through Joshua. That second generation... The ones led by Moses, they died in the desert. But that second generation, they they moved forward. But then there's a third promise of rest. And this comes from the biblical account of the cross. And this one is the perfect rest because here's the thing. It is not dependent on man to keep. Why is it not dependent on man to keep? Because it wasn't dependent on man to earn. We didn't earn it of our own merit. God freely gave it. And if He is the only one who could give it, He is the only one who can keep it. But we receive it through true faith. It's given us this picture so that we can know and see in our in the own history of man, this is what God has done to say, this is why you must trust Me if you're ever going to have this rest. Any other way is rebellion. You see, the Bible gives us this exposure. It opens our ears and it opens our eyes to say, this is what is possible that God, the living God, the Lord of all, is doing and can do. It exposes it. And we need that exposure. Because without it, we're just blind. We're just trying to all feel our way about. We're like that wake up in the middle of the night having to go to the facilities. I'll just put it that way. And, and, and we can't see anything. We're just kind of like, oh, stumbling about trying to figure out, I think this is the way. But exposure to the Word says, I'm opening up your ears to listen and learn and lean into me. And I'm opening your eyes to see this is what I have done and this is what I am going to do for all who trust me. The Word gives us this. The Word also pierces our life. It not only opens our eyes and ears, it goes down deep into our life. And it reveals to us something that something is transformational if we will be open to it. First of all, it reveals the underestimating that is possible for God's Word. You see, it's not giving us these these, um, historical accounts for no needed purpose or just to give us a word picture. It is letting us know that there has been a history and it is easily repeated for us in our rebellion, us in the hardening of our hearts 
to underestimate the value of God's Word. And, and I, I will say that I say, I've seen evidence of this in, in, in my life, in the lives of others. Because I, I have found this. People will say, I, I've tried church. I've tried getting baptized. I, I, I tried going to a class. I tried singing. And they'll lose hope in all these things because they see the pattern of their life still crumbling. Because they're trying all these works things. And yet, whenever you tell them, have you spent time in the Word? They say, well, I've done all these other things. This can't be of value. But what they don't understand is this is what goes down deep. All the other things are merely surface. They're just like taking a bath. They're not like taking the medicine. And the underestimating that can happen of taking what God has said, I have richly given thee. I mean, what an awesome privilege. The God who spoke the cosmos in existence says, Come here, I want you to lean in and listen to me. I have a word for you. I have a word not only for you individually, but for the church collectively. How awesome is that? And and yet it is such a possibility for the underestimating of God's words. And not just for those who are disbelief and, and feel like they have no evidence of God. It's also possible for those who are surrounded by the incredible evidence. To taste and walk away. This morning in the connection where we talked about what is, what is the difference there? Because it seems like there are those that the Bible is talking about that were part of that body, a part of that people, and yet they're walking away. They're committing apostasy. What is it? What is the difference? In our connection group, we talked about this difference of it's those who have sat at the table and they see the good layout, the feast that's there, and they've tasted it and be like, okay, that's all right. But I don't need it. And then those that sit there and they taste it and like, I never want to leave. There's nothing like this. I will not be satisfied with anything else. That's the difference. Those who have tasted it. And then those who've made it their life to enjoy it. Because they recognize that after I've had it, there's nothing greater. There's nothing better. We need to under we need to realize the revelation the word tells us there are there is the potential for us to underestimate God's word, but we need to realize it's never to be underestimated. We need to understand that there are people that are going to be underestimating of God's word. Maybe it's because they think they've tried it, or they think they've seen people that have tried it, and they walk away. But it also reveals to us the undertaking of God's Word, of what God did to bring His people rest. For Adam and Eve, this, this people that had the rest of God in the garden, whenever they walked out, they, they tried to fit themselves before they came into a, a, a moment of encounter with the Lord who walked among them. They tried to fit themselves with some fig leaf underwear. Here's the thing about fig leaf underwear. You know what happens with fig leaves? They wither and die. You gotta keep making yourself some new underwear. That's something that's not gonna last. And what does God do for them? He slays two creatures so that they have covering. And He walks with them. 
Their children are still worshiping the Lord. Their children are still hearing the voice of the Lord. They can't be in the garden anymore. They're going to face death and, and thorns and all the other things in the future. But they're still walking with the Lord. What does God do in speaking His Word to the people of Israel? He delivers them under Pharaoh's mighty hand by His mightier hand. It shows how when God speaks, things happen. And what does God do whenever He draws a man? If you hear His voice and you do not harden His heart, you follow. You believe. You trust. And you walk in the newness of the Lord. That God who, in all of His plans, the undertaking of His Word, it points us to Him being the giver of rest. It speaks it. And then it gives us another depiction. And that of the cross. That to make what He spoke possible, He displayed Himself on the cross for us. That's the glory of what God did to save mankind. So that we would see the undertaking of His Word is not just Him speaking a bunch of lofty promises, but to see this God engaged in the history of mankind to bring about it to its completeness. And if He has done it this far, we can trust Him for all the rest of the way. There is no end to where we would say, I can only go with you this far on the road and then I'm stopping. You've been with us this much. I see the undertaking of Your Word. And it reveals to us the understanding of His Word, when we begin seeing there is no one greater than Jesus. He indeed is better than anything else I could ever pursue. There is no religion. There is no philosophy. There is no worldview. There is no work. There is no hope. There is no good. There is no charity. There is nothing that could bring about all the goodness and glory that Jesus provided. Why? Because He's God alone. Nobody tops God alone. It gives me a a, a renewed understanding through His Word that why would I ever leave Jesus? Why would I ever try to to find hope in some other place? And this is why the reader of Hebrews, he spends his time talking about these depictions of history, these declarations that God has made. But then he brings us back to, to what we have before us in His Word. And is that which not only exposes us with our eyes and ears, not only what pierces us to the depths, but it also corrects us in a new way. Look at all these, these explanations for the Word. These um, evidences for its work in our life in correcting us. One, it's living. It's active. It is not a dead book. It is not a dead word. It is alive. It is effective. Like when we put it into place, it's not something that's going to have like a small byproduct. No, it's going to be utterly effective. You ever listen to those commercials with the prescriptions? You know, this will help cure this or prevent this. But these are the side effects. And the side effects are so ridiculous, you're like, I don't know, I think I might just die. I think that'd be better. But what the Bible says is it's not just going to have like byproduct effects. It's going to be utterly effective in our life when we take it in. 
It is living and effective. Effective to save. Effective to convict. Effective to sanctify. Effective to guide. Effective to trust. It is living in effect. It is sharp. It is deep. What do I mean by that? What does the Bible mean by that? It gives the imagery of a double-edged sword. There are sharp swords out there, to be sure, of, of different variations. But what it was saying in the double-edged sword is there's not a part on each side of the blade that's not dangerous. That doesn't need to be handled with care. That doesn't need to be handled in the way that it is. It is a weapon of righteousness. It is an instrument of God's glory. That is not to be just kind of tossed about flippantly. It is to be handled as something that is serious. As something that is grave, even. Because it penetrates as far as the separation of the soul and spirit. There is no part of the soul, there's no part of the life, the body, that cannot be touched by the Word where it can't have its way. It is separating and judging. It, it is discerning in our life. It will parse apart even the finest little spots. We may think, I have all this together, but then there's that little bitty malignancy that God says, nope. Carve that right off. It will speak even to that. It leaves no room for judging on our own because it judges us. Through it. It is also convincing because it is the Word of God spoken to us that brings us near. It says, No creature is hidden from Him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. This is where the Word offers some of the gravest exposure, some of the deepest points and the correction that we all need. If we're going to have rest from God, if we're going to not live the futile, flippant, faulty way and set our lives upon the rest that's provided by listening and following the Lord in true faith, then we need to understand that one day all of us will stand before the Lord basically naked. Basically naked without any account other than are you righteous based on what my Son has done for you? Or are you not? Are you with Jesus, in Jesus? Or would you say my life was semi-near Jesus? Because there is a distinctive difference. Those with Jesus have come to the point where they recognize that God is awesomely holy in all that He is, all that He says, all that He does, and everything will be held in account to that holiness. Why does He get to do that? Because He's the Lord. There's no one greater than Him. There's no one but Him. He created all. The reason you live and breathe is because He spoke it. Everything will be held to account by Him. But the problem is that exposed to God, whenever He can, by a scalpel's edge, look and see the deep things of our soul, He sees every issue. Even if we think on the outside, we've got it all together. He sees the deep-rootedness of sin, the offense of it. And it's utterly unrighteous. But God being the one who keeps His promises that He speaks, His Word being living and effective, none of His promises go 
delayed. None of His promises go without fruit. None of them fail. And to provide rest, He sent His Son. It says that He, the Word, the One who speaks the Word, He became flesh. And He made His dwelling among us. And we were able to see His glory, the glory of the one and only begotten Son. Why did He do that? So we could set the full example of this is the God who is holy. This is who He means. We can see the exact representation of of the Lord when we look to Jesus. But He also did it because a price was needed to be paid. There needed to be a priest that would stand to speak on behalf of mankind. He was willing to do it, but there also needed to be a sheep, a lamb, that would die in their place. And so whenever He said, it is finished, He's saying, what was necessary to accomplish rest completely is done through Me. Now to all who receive Me, I will give them rest. But it is a personal responsibility. The Bible tells us these warnings that each of us will do this because it's a personal response to the Lord. No one can do this for you. True faith, true faith is a dependency to say, I believe, not just a mental not head knowledge, but I trust and I lean in with a dependency on Jesus alone to save. That eternal rest has been provided and that life transformed by following the Word of the Lord is made new. This is what it means to have the ultimate correction found in Christ. This is what the Word provides for us. It exposes our eyes and ears to it. It pierces our soul and says, this is the way of correction. Now it's laid before you. You've heard what the Word says. You see what it means. You see how it applies, but the question remains, what will you personally do to heed the word of the Lord? Let's pray. Lord God, uh, today as we come to the conclusion of this time, I don't know what you are moving to do and moving to accomplish in the lives of each soul here, but I know that your word does not return void. You have made that promise and, and I believe it because you spoke it, not because it sounded good, but because you spoke it. So Lord, let it not return void today. What it needs to accomplish in this time among this group of, of men and women, young and old, that you would have your way in their life because you are the Lord. You are worthy of our trust, worthy of our faith, and worthy of our steps following to the ways that you lead. Lead us, Lord. Help us follow. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We have this time of response. And we do this each week in our worship gathering. Like I said, worship is recognizing who God is and then us responding appropriately in the light of it. And so today I'm going to give you a chance to respond. And, and I'll tell you this. You may not know every single thing there is to know about God, but that which he's saying, I want you to respond to this right now. Don't put that on delay. Don't harden your hearts. The Bible calls that rebellion. Respond to the Lord and see His grace that will help you with that step and the next one after. I'm going to be here at the front and if you need someone to to counsel with, pray with, if you have questions, I want to be here for you. But the most important thing that you do is following the Word of the Lord wherever He leads. You do that and we'll be here should you need help.